Hello, Happy New Year, Relatable Community. This is Teresa Freeman, your host, and I'm excited to kick off the first episode of the year with a very special interview. I have the pleasure of speaking with oncologist, Dr. Timothy Cannon, phenomenal doctor and human. (laughs) Dr. Cannon is Paul's oncologist, and it's hard to put into words how much we appreciate everything he's done for us. To put it simply, for us, he represents light and hope as he was there providing us that light when at times it felt like we were in a very dark tunnel. In addition to talking about our personal experience, Dr. Cannon shares his path to being a successful oncologist. What put him on the course of where he is today? Something that happened during college basketball, a mission trip to Taiwan, or perhaps a special patient that significantly impacted his choices. And what is his controversial take on the power of positivity during cancer treatment? Listen in to find out and enjoy this episode. One thing I want to tell you, because I feel like, uh, I don't know if we've told you this or if this came up in his conversation or not, but I do know that before we kind of jump in, just because I have this forum and I feel like I can say it publicly, but for for us, like you have been such a great doctor with respect to just putting us at ease. And I think out of the gate when we met you, um, where he had been through sort of, and we've already talked about this, like we didn't quite know what he had and there was some misdiagnosis and then we kind of finally figured out what was going on with him. And I'll never forget, like you came into the the hospital room because he had to get his feeding tube and some other things. And you're very tall, like you're a very tall guy. And uh, and so I remember when you came to meet him and we were in the room, you knelt down. Do you, I don't know if you remember this or if this is something you do often, but you kind of knelt down so that you were kind of, because he was laying down in the bed, obviously. And so you kind of had that perspective. And I just thought that was so kind, like that gesture, but then also like the first thing out of your mouth, and at least in his case, even though it was going to be a, like a, a fight, it was like, you know, you can beat this. I think where that was like the first thing out of your mouth was like, this is like, this is something you can, we can, we have a plan and there's a path or whatever. So I think out like going through all of that and just having that voice of assuredness and you have such a nice, like you have a great balance between like credibility and feeling like you're in good hands, but also being compassionate. So I just want to say thank you for that because obviously being, you know, kind of shepherd, you're like our shepherd through the whole thing for the most part. And so we just really appreciate that. Well, I really appreciate that, Teresa. Thank you for the kind words. I I do tend to get on my knees for all the visits in the hospital because the beds are so low and I'm so tall and I look at them and they're straining their neck to look at me and it makes me uncomfortable. So I'm actually more comfortable if I kneel down and look at them eye to eye. I also, you know, sometimes have trouble hearing people because I'm so, you know, obviously I'm five feet above them and they're not Sometimes their voices are a little weak after the procedures. Remember how Paul, of course, had the EGD, so right. he'd already sort of had his uh, had a tool go down his, you know, oropharynx, you know, the larynx, and so I, uh, or I guess it didn't, but it went in that yeah. that general direction. So right, <laughs> just generally works better to to kneel, I think, and uh, that's sort of my trademark in the hospital. Everyone always comments on the kneeling, that's and yeah, and no, and that's and that's nice feedback though to hear about. Uh, 
you know, our first first encounter. And thank sure. you. So let's talk, maybe we just stuck. I, I often ask people to start with a day in the life, but I think for you, because we talked about this a little bit before and uh, when I was pestering you and <laughs> begging you to <laughs> come, come be on the show, uh, because actually I wanted you to come on for a long time. And, and Paul was, it was like very important to him that we wait <laughs> to a certain point. And then he's like, now you can ask him. I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> let's start maybe a little bit with your path because you said your path was non-traditional and sort of how you've landed, you, you know, yourself here with, with respect to your career in oncology. So can, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, your path to this point? Sure. Yeah. And I don't know how far back you want me yeah. to go, but um, I had thought about being a, a physician when I was really young. Uh, I liked the idea of it because I, I thought science was pretty interesting and I liked the idea of working with people. Um, I was not really an exceptional student in it. In, I, I was a good student, but not like exceptional in high school. I was very focused on sports. Paul can relate to that. I played basketball and baseball and got really serious about basketball, of course, in high school. And that was always my focus. And when I was picking colleges, I was solely focused on on basketball. Of course, I grew up in New Jersey, but in a Mormon family. And so all of my relatives were in Utah, and I ended up going to University of Utah for a year. And at that time, I was thinking about medicine, so I took some pre-med classes and then went on a, on a Mormon mission to Taiwan. And when I came back, for whatever reason, I was more inclined to think about business. Business stuff, I guess maybe because I knew Chinese, I thought, oh, this would be good for <laughs> economics or business or something. And, and for whatever reason, it sort of lost my passion or for, for doing medicine. And so I was an econ major for a while and then broke my ankle playing basketball, you know, in basketball junior year and uh, the very beginning of my junior year of college. And that made me rethink things because, you know, A, basketball wasn't really going that great for me in college, um, which may have been a blessing. And B, um, I, I sort of my encounters with the healthcare providers that were treating me for my ankle fracture I, I just thought, well, I'd like to do this a little better than they do it. You know, they weren't, you know, didn't seem to be paying a lot of attention to what they were doing and focusing on their, they didn't, I didn't come out of conversations with them with, you know, a huge amount of faith or understanding of what was going on. Or, and so I thought, you know, it'd be like, I'd like, like to do this and do it better. So I signed up for pre-med core classes and it was funny. And I sort of had a lot more motivation at that point. It was more focused I, you know, had this specific goal, I think being in Taiwan for two years, having to learn Chinese, it also made just studying easier for me generally. And so I really aced my, you know, the, the pre-med core classes I took that year, my junior year, which were, um, you know, the biology classes and, and 200, I think 200 level physics classes. And so I said, oh yeah, I'm going to go for it. So, uh, yeah, so I, and then I took the MCAT a year later, but I, it was too late for me to have a science major. So I ended up majoring in Chinese and taking the pre-med core and then going, getting into a, a few different med schools and going to my state school, which is essentially Rutgers medical school. It wasn't affiliated with Rutgers at the time. It was called Robert Wood Johnson, but it was the only, there were two MD schools in New Jersey and it was one of the two. And now it's called Rutgers medical school. It's on Rutgers campus. And yeah, so I went there and then you know, had a, went through several different iterations of what kind of doctor I was going to be, but eventually yeah. found my way to hematology oncology, and I'm glad I did. So first, I have to say you have a connection with Missy, who's uh, my producer, because she's um, a lot of her family's in Utah, so there's a big connection there, and um, I'm sure they'd love to know that you played basketball. It was at Utah, right? You know, right? 
one year at UTEM, and uh, if you count the broken ankle year, three years at BYU, but really only two years that I appeared in games for BYU. Okay. So now, Missy, you'll have to go back to the fam and be like, you talked to a celebrity Mormon today. Yeah, I actually took a quick question about the um, the mission piece, because I this is interesting to me. I talked to a lot of people, right, about their path, and I'm particularly interested in people, to your point around, like, you were a decent student, but you were focused more on sports, and then you go on your mission, and then you come back, and you were a little bit more focused, and then you're able to apply yourself maybe in a different way. I'm curious about, do you think something happens developmentally, right? Because that was, that's two years that like, so you go into college as a freshman at 19, then you, then you're on mission for two years, you come back, you're 23. Are you like, how old 21. are you? You're 21. Yeah. When you came back. Yeah. I was 21, and but then, I was, I graduated later. I was 24 when I graduated yeah. from college. So do you feel like that in some ways, like, I mean, maybe that experience even more so impacted you in a way that you were able to be more focused, but just developmentally, like taking that break and then coming back and going to school. Do you think that is a factor in your ability to be able to focus and perform well? Absolutely. I mean, I I think sort of the diagnosis of ADHD is more ubiquitous now, but when I think back to myself as a kid, I'm sure I had it. You know, I had a, a huge problem concentrating you know, really with anything, you know, on tasks at home, finishing, you know, yard work, you know, definitely studying. But um, in Taiwan, you, you know, I don't know if you know much about the structure of these missions, but you get assigned to, you get assigned to go to a place and then you are, you know, you don't really have any choice about where you go or who is your companion, you know, one other person that you're with. And so for most of those two years, I was, you know, just alone, living alone with one of the persons, sometimes they were Chinese speaking only person, you know, you can only call home two times a year, you work from essentially, you know, depending on what you consider work, but you're really kind of studying and working all day, and you have to meet different, um, you know, sort of different uh, milestones in your Chinese language and other things. And so you become very disciplined. And there's almost there's really no distractions you're not allowed, allowed to watch tv or even read books that aren't approved so so at least for me i think that was sort of transformative because i had no choice but to sort of be able to focus and and i guess what happened because because sort of what i was allowed to do was so narrow and frankly sometimes for me personally i found a lot of it not so interesting at home everything was interesting you know i'd read a textbook and i'd be like this is amazing Bi- biology textbook this is how this works you know and suddenly all of the things that were so boring because they were competing with you know sports and television video games suddenly became like amazingly interesting and i could read any book you know so yeah so when i i got back everything was everything was easier for me i mean definitely the other part that was a lot easier for me was human interaction you know i'll always be a little socially awkward but Oh, for two years, you're, you're used to thinking in another language and having to, you know, make conversation with people and look them in the eye. And, and so all of that kind of thing became much easier for me as well when I came home. So all, a lot of skills that you use as a doctor become much easier after ex- an experience like that. That's incredible. And then as far as that mission is concerned, are you being there and saying it was so difficult? Like, you just know that that's part of the path. Like, did you at any point or you're like, uh, yeah, I'm done with this. <laughs> <laughs> or like you just make that commitment and you see it through, right? Like yeah. is in terms of the motivation to stay or the motivation to see that through, how does that 
how do you keep that? Yeah, this is almost its own podcast uh, because I, I may not answer this the same way most Mormon kids would do it. I, I probably went into it and came out with it. You know, the, most of the kids on there have a genuine and sincere, you know, religious conviction about what they're doing. And that's hard to understand if you're not part of an Orthodox religion. I mean, I think, you know, uh, I grew up in New Jersey, of course, so, every, you know, I, I didn't know any other non-Mormons that were really devout in their religion or, or even could understand the idea of being a literal believer or, you know, a really devout person. And, and frankly, I was, I didn't, didn't have a lot of the feelings that a lot of the fellow missionaries had. So that part of it was always a little bit harder for me. And so I think because I was, I, I had some concerns about the mission of the mission. There were a few times for that, you know, that I thought going home because of that, but but I could always easily recognize how good this was for me personally, how useful it would yeah. be for me personally. And frankly, a lot of the work is fantastic that we did over there. You know, I think, you know, there's, a, you know, you spend a portion of your time doing service and you build relationships with amazing people. And, you know, I think, you know, whereas some of the points of orthodoxy, you know, I can understand how somebody, you know, listening to this would say, but, you know, isn't, don't you, you know, right. could be valid concerns about proselytizing. I think, uh, you know, most of the ways it's done are really in a, you know, in the spirit of serving and you're, and you're around a lot of, you meet a lot of great people and it's, you know, so and I it think, was a experience. I never thought about going home. Well, I, at the beginning it was really hard and I got homesick, but no, I mean, I think I didn't think about going home once I was there for a few months. Yeah. And I think yeah. too, what it, like you said, transformative experience and, and all of the ways that it shifted for you what became a priority i don't know it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing that it had such a lifelong impact right in terms of how you ended up pursuing your path that's right about a fifth of the patients i see i speak chinese to now really yeah yeah, that's amazing let's talk a little bit just because you mentioned it in terms of your selection to choose oncology and you know a lot of people would say that's probably fairly heartbreaking (laughs) line of work to be in, thankfully, or it seems at least, and this is another question I have for you for, for maybe a little later, but just the pace in which things are moving and how things have evolved just in our lifetime is pretty just mind-blowing to me even, but um, and you're in the thick of it. But in terms of selecting this as a specialty or, or how did you come to finding like this was the right place for you? Yeah. So when uh, I was in medical school, you know, you have to kind of choose by your third year of what you're going to do. And I was inclined to do emergency medicine and did some rotations in that at NYU and in Camden, New Jersey, which was our kind of where our best sort of ER rotation in New Jersey was uh, at the time. And so I, I thought that would be interesting. I like the idea of shift work. I like the, the energy, the, you know, I liked how, you know, fast moving it was and uh, you'd see a variety of things. And so that was what I was set on initially. Um, but then uh, during my fourth year, just after around the time that you have to pick, select your what you're going to match into for residency, I did an oncology rotation in New Brunswick, and I loved it. I just thought it was so fascinating. Probably the seminal moment of the rotation was seeing a guy with something called Burkitt's lymphoma, a young guy. I think he was probably in his late 20s, and he just had this giant you know, tumor on his lower abdomen, kind of in his inguinal area, just like and lower abdomen, upper pelvis. And the oncologist said to me, you know, well, we're going to start this treatment and includes this new drug that's an antibody to, you know, a protein called 
um, CD20. And you're going to see nine times out of 10, these things just melt away. And I said, wow, really? Because I, you know, the, when I saw him, he looked so sick and he was pale and, and uh, it looked like he was going to die. And I, I said, wow. That... And so it was towards the beginning of a, of, a, of a rotation. So I got to kind of see him over, you know, a week's time in the hospital and a week and a half. And sure enough, by that, you know, by about day seven or eight, the thing was just, had shrunk dramatically. And I said, wow, this is much more interesting than, you know, <laughs> pulling a cockroach out of somebody's ear in, in an ER. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so although that was had its own charm, but the, uh, but I said, this is, I think this is what I want to do. And uh, unfortunately the match had already, it was, you know, the interviews time had already passed. And so I ended up, you know, long story short, I figured out a way to kind of get through this and, and shift from emergency medicine to to internal medicine, which is the path you have to take to go to oncology, because some of the emergency medicines residencies require an intern year anyway. Some of them don't, some of them do, but I just selected for the ones that did so I could make the transition at my first year. And then by the end of the fourth year and very beginning of my intern year, I was sure that I wanted to do hematology oncology. So I, I switched, I did a residency in DC and then um, then did a fellowship at NYU in New York. And is that, when you say hematology oncology, like because of where Paul's, now you focus particularly in a particular part of the body or do you, do you cover all parts? I, like, I don't, I just don't know enough to even ask the right question here. <laughs> but when you yeah, say, no, I no. think hematology <laughs> is blood, I think, is that right? Yeah. Right. So you would call me an oncologist. I mean, that's what yeah, I really do now is focus on treating cancers. And in fact, I only do GI cancers now. So through the course of my career, as it often happens in oncology, you start to really subspecialize. But when you go through training to become an oncologist, you most, most programs require you to also get board certified in hematology, which is like where you learn about anemia and, you know, and, and some other rare diseases, but also leukemia and lymphoma, which are really blood disorders. And of mm. course, when we give chemotherapy or other treatments, we often cause hematologic changes, you know, suppress the bone marrow. So there's so much overlap in the specialties that they're usually, usually do training in them together. And then you have to take board exams for each of them separately if you want to continue to practice each of them. And so right now I don't really practice hematology, but in fellow, the fellowship, that three-year extra training you do after residency is in both hematology and oncology. So anyway, that's why they call it, some people call me an oncologist. Yeah, I could be called a hematologist oncologist. But I only do really Paul's type of stuff, you know, yeah. GI. All right. Let me ask yeah. you this one question for people that might be listening that are in med school or, you know, in the throes of trying to make this decision. I've, I've talked to one other doctor that was an orthopedic surgeon. And so he talked a little bit about this, but I am curious because, you know, you know about, you hear about sort of the schooling being rigorous. You hear about the residencies being rigorous and no sleep. And you hear about like the sort of difficulties in just kind of getting through all of that to get to the part where you actually get to practice the medicine that you want. And so I think my question for you is what helped you stay the course? You know, what helped kind of keep you motivated when those times were tough or when it was like, you know, seemed like you were never going to get there? Relatable is sponsored by TFA Soft Skills, your one-stop shop for workshops, coaching, speaking, and soft skills development. If you'd like to hire Teresa, 
Visit www.tfasoftskills.com for more information. Yeah, um, right. It's a long path, as you said. I mean, my kids are always like, really? So you went to school, you know, after college, you did four, four years of medical school and six years of training. That means with college, you were basically in school for 14 years, which is true. You know, I, I guess the there's a, there's always the fear of failure that partially motivates a lot of us. Yeah. And I definitely have that. I'm like, oh my gosh, I told everyone to go to med school. I can't possibly, <laughs> I can't sort of hang my head in shame and say now that now I'm going to be a, you know, whatever. Right. Basketball coach. So there was that. And uh, then it was always interesting. There was always sort of, I was always felt like I was always reaching for more knowledge that, you know, would be helpful and, and, and fun to acquire. You know, I think even when I was, you know, there definitely some tests and subjects I didn't do exceptionally well at in med school, but, you know, it was interesting enough that I would, you know, still be motivated to continue to learn more, even if I wasn't getting the best score in the class. There's also like nothing else I could imagine doing. I'm sure they okay, well, what's my alternative yeah. plan? can't even imagine what it would be. And so now when I think about it, it just boggles my mind. Like, you know, everything was really riding on that MCAT for me. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking, what if I hadn't, because I scored better on the real test than I ever had on a practice test. And I think, thought, you know, if I hadn't done well on that, I wonder what I would do. And I'm sure, you know, I would have found my way in some yeah. discipline, but it's hard to imagine liking it when I, when I hear what other people do, I think, oh, that sounds terrible. You know, all this, <laughs> just, yeah. just trying to, the alternative was a lot of motivation for me because I just, I couldn't imagine being a lawyer and trying to read through detailed documents. I mean, that's just about, that would be very hard for me that are, you know, about tax or something. You know, I just can't imagine doing that or, you know, most of the things that I hear my friends doing, I, I find it hard to imagine do, that I enjoy. Do you believe that you, this is your purpose? I think that, that I can't imagine doing anything else. So it's the perfect thing for me. Like yeah. I just cannot imagine doing anything else. And I actually enjoy going to work. I mean, that's the biggest blessing in my life. Like I, I get sad sometimes. I do get a little depressed. Sometimes I really get nervous, Yeah. but um, I don't get bored. And I, you know, and I, I look forward to going there every day to, you know, to see what challenges await. I love the relationships I build with people. I love the way the science changes and learning more about oncology. I get frustrated that we're not making more progress, but I love it overall. I'm not sure I believe there's one job for everybody or some, yeah. you know, divine match for everybody uh, per se, but it does kind of feel like this is a divine match for me. Yeah. No, perfect. Okay. So you mentioned a lot of things there that I have questions about. I think the first, because I, I think it's interesting in terms of the pace and the way things change, one of the things, uh, and I, I, I do have a question in this, I'm just have to get there. <laughs> one of the things that when Paul was diagnosed, I remember looking it up right and and everyone's like don't look it up <laughs> um because if you look it up and you you know and you see online what it is like the prognosis is not very good and and i've had a lot of people in my life who've had family members with cancer various types of cancer that have passed away very close friends you know family members and so one very one very close friend of mine who sadly has had a fair amount of it in her life said you know just beware that you know whatever you read is probably five years old you know, she was kind of the first person to say, I think before maybe we even met you, just try not to go too far down that rabbit hole and just really listen to the people that like your care team in terms of what is current and what they know. And I feel like in our case that that was true. I mean, in terms of like things were happening real time, even to the extent that the day Paul got surgery <laughs> is the day that the FDA approved immunotherapy <laughs> for him. 
And, you know, we thought that was the end of the road. Like the surgery was the all we, there was to offer for him. And so I just, I think my question to you is like in terms of maybe from a patient perspective of like the, the confirmation of that, that like things are happening all the time, there's studies happening all the time. And, and how are you and your brethren of, of oncologists like staying up to date on that? Or, or how, do you, how do you stay ahead of it? I, I, yeah. That's really the right question. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great question and right. I mean, you're you're the sort of it is true that clinical trial data is collected off people who started the clinical trial, you know, often five to ten years ago, right? Otherwise, you don't have you know that's the you can't collect data for many years after you start the intervention, right? So because you don't know the outcome for years after. So, so in that sense, you're always getting, you know, you're we're using data that's kind of old, and sometimes in some cancers, it's incredibly dynamic. Things change, new standards emerge, new medicines emerge. In others, pancreatic cancer, for example, it feels like nothing's ever changing because nothing ever works. Mm. Paul, of course, it was unique, right? Because he, uh, we had never used immunotherapy after surgery until, until the relevant trial for him, Checkmate 577, came out. And that happened to come out while he was in surgery. And uh, I didn't Same. know it was coming out then, and I didn't give you any heads up. And you thought, <laughs> hey, we're all done. Surgery is the last step. And then I moved the finish line on you. <laughs> and that's a good example of how, um, uh, but with good good reasoning, with good results, that's an example of how things do change quickly in oncology. As far as how how does that information yeah. get disseminated, um, It's a, there's a lot of different ways. So there's sort of like one reason I believe that people should get treated at a cancer center is because there's a lot more exchange of information going on at a cancer center. You know, I used to work at a private practice, which was a great private practice, but it was small. And, you know, there was not a lot of sort of peer information there. You know, people just kind of put their head down and finish. Here, of course, we have multiple meetings per week. We have three tumor boards a week. We have a fellow conference. And there's six GI, or there's five, five GI only oncologists in our group. So there's always a lot of exchange of information going on within. And, you know, maybe one person gets it from, you know, an FDA email or, or some sort of educational conference or the Journal of Clinical Oncology podcast or whatever, or, or the New York Times. You know, you never know where it's coming from or just PubMed, you know, PubMed search or a peer that emails them. And then the information circulates around. Uh, there are more, the other ways, of course, you know, even if for whatever reason that doesn't get to you, we really go to the big conferences. You know, you have to spend, devote at least, you know, six days a year, really focused on oncology conferences, the American Society of Clinical Oncology annual meeting in June, which is every year in Chicago, has 30,000 plus oncologists there. So I don't know if that's the exact number, but a lot of oncologists, you know, you really get a lot of information there, a lot of updates. Um, and then, you know, we always go to other meetings. I usually, you know, AACR or GI ASCO or other sort of disease specific meetings are a great place for free to learn things. And frankly, you know, as much as we hold our noses about the way for the pharmaceutical industry, you know, operates in America, they are very good at disseminating information about their drugs to doctors, you know, and, and we have a policy about no visitation in the clinic, mm-hmm. uh, but they're sending emails all the time, like, hey, there's this new data. And, you know, it's it's useful. So in a way, we have a symbiotic relationship with uh, pharmaceutical companies, yeah. even though I'm empathetic to all the criticisms that, that people have yeah. of them. But they, 
They do put a lot of money into gathering data. The data is gathered with a ton of oversight from neutral partners. And so, you know, on the, on the, you know, sort of patient delivery side, they can seem and often are incredibly greedy. They at least gather and disseminate the information in a way that, you know, are, and are forced to do it in a way that is with integrity and honest honesty. And, you know, and they, they also educate us. So on the patient side, this is the, uh, another question I wanted to ask. So just to bring it back, cause I always feel like, you know, the personal touch, but when we were in that conversation with you kind of post-surgery and, and you told us about the, the immunotherapy or the, this sort of next chance, um, you know, I remember we, <laughs> we were like, what, you know, and, and as a patient, like, I think it was a process. He had to process that, you know, had to keep the chemo poured in for another two years, which by the way, he wanted me to tell you, he just got that out. Finally, he got it out uh, two weeks ago, but anyway, yeah, he got the pour out. But, um, but you know, and that sort of mental gymnastics of like, no, this is a good thing. This is like, this is actually from your perspective, like it was great news (laughs) that, that there was this other leg for him. But I, I think the question for you is about patient readiness or like from your perspective, and this is maybe a hard question to answer, but for people out there, like what makes a great patient, you know, in terms of like what you've seen in your practice, what you've seen in your experience, what are you, I'm not that you can answer this in a way that guarantees uh, full recovery. I'm not suggesting that, but it just, what are some of the things that you've noticed that you think help for, for someone in terms of their fight against this kind of disease? Yeah, and Paul is an A plus patient, that's for sure. <laughs> I hesitate, when I answer this question, I'm a little nervous that patients, you know, if anyone's listening, that's a, that's a patient. You don't have to be a great patient. You know, we're not, yeah. I'm not judging you. I'm yeah. here to serve you. So there's nothing you need to do to prove yourself to me, obviously. You know, everyone's worthy of an uh, incredible effort by their healthcare team and the best care. Yeah. But that being said, I do think there are things that, that help. Um, I recently gave a talk on lifestyle and cancer, and it, there is a lot of data now, in specifically in colorectal cancer, but I would imagine it can be extrapolated to other types of cancer that support exercise reducing the risk of recurrence. And I mean, not just these are fairly well controlled studies. There's even a huge meta analysis, which is sort of an aggregation of a lot of studies that are randomized and controlled on this subject. And so I think the patient that exercises is, I think that's one thing that you can do that I think is really important. As far as diet goes, which is where most patients seem to feel the secret sauce is, it's really been hard to prove that any dietary changes uh, change your outcome in cancer. But, but I do think that diet that's low in sugar and red meats and high in fruit and ve- fruits and vegetables certainly is good for your heart. But also, I think just makes people feel better and weather the storms of treatment better. Mm-hmm. And it can't be bad for the cancer. I can't see any way it could be bad. So, you know, I think diet, you know, in that sense, does does matter. I think uh, people ask questions about what, you know, should I be Googling everything? I, I wouldn't necessarily discourage it. You know, a lot of times people apologize to me for looking up things on Google. And I think, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with getting, you know, information. In fact, it helps me as an oncologist. We, we, it's easier for us if the patient has a more nuanced understanding of what they're doing and why they're doing it. And, you know, I find it a little easier to care for people in more educated areas, because although we don't obviously we treat everyone as do the best best we absolutely can. But it does help when the patient has a little bit of understanding of nuance and says, OK, they're doing this maneuver, you know, that you can't think of things in medicine like like you would as a, like fixing this or not fixing this carpenter. You're really doing things to change your odds. 
And I think people that, you know, at higher education levels do have a little bit of a better, you know, understanding mm-hmm. of that. And therefore they often will make better medical decisions because they have a more nuanced understanding and better medical literacy and think of things in the right terms. Like, okay, I've got this and this, here's the risks and benefits of path A, here are the risks and benefits of path B. This is how it changed my, changes my odds of, of success. I think understanding that helps people make better health choices and be a better partner with their physician. I spend a lot of time thinking about what makes the right kind of partner and family support person for the patient with cancer. And I can just imagine anyone listening to this podcast saying, when's he going to say something about a positive attitude? I, I don't like when you know people say that somebody has to have a positive attitude. First of all, I, I personally hate when people try to manip- manipulate my emotions personally uh-huh. and or like, you know, text me to smile more or something like that. Nobody likes that stuff, right? But I also think that yeah, I get, I see so much of that. I'll get a family in the clinic and he just needs to be more positive. Come on, positive attitude. Right. Kills I see that over and over again. And who can do that, first of all? And secondly, where's the proof that that actually matters? In fact, I, I was, I had another esophageal cancer patient that had long odds of being cured. And I saw him at the five year mark and cancer still isn't coming back. And, you know, that pretty much means cure in our world. And I said, next time somebody says that a positive attitude is what cures cancer, I'm going to laugh in their face because you're the most negative person I've ever met. You would admit it too. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I also, I heard an NPR, this American life thing about a daughter, you know, she used the term sunshine bully. I thought that is perfect. That's exactly what's going on here. They are, I, I, you know, and it makes, I think it makes the patients miserable. Like, oh gosh, I've got to go through this end and you're going to tell me how I have to react to things. You know, it's a bit much. So I'm not going to, so in other words, that's my, that's my diatribe against the positive attitude kills cancer or makes an A plus patient. You don't have to be positive. Sure. It's nice to be around positive people and, you know, you want to be excessively negative, but you know, I don't see why you have to always be positive. I feel like that. I feel like first, it's kind of provocative, right? I bet I bet some people might have an opinion about that. What I think is so interesting about about that, and just you know, obviously our personal experiences. I think the way that Paul approached it was very practical. From a like, here's what the thing is. Here are the things I'm supposed to do. And in in the way that he is, unlike I'm way more of a control freak than he is. So it's interesting that he was able to sort of. I don't want to say succumb to the situation, but like you're the care provider. This is what, you know, we had decisions along the way for sure. We got second opinion. I mean, that's not saying we were just like, yeah, just tell us what to do and we'll do it. And we were blind followers, but there was a point in which he was like, they're driving the plane, you know, they're, they're, or they're, you know, captain of the boat. And I'm, I need to do my part and show up and do the things, but to try to overmanage that. And I would not say, you know, he's not Mr. Bowl of sunshine either. He's not like a horribly negative human, but I'm more the like, you know. Uh, so I just think it's interesting that you say that. And I think it's probably actually maybe quite liberating for people to hear that, yeah. you know, that they don't have to be rooted in that. For yeah. sure. And I think you're right. You know, at some level, you have to just trust your doctor. I mean, you can't. Yeah, I, I think it's sure it's good to get Google and get basic information, but you're never going to be able to recreate you know, 14 years of medical education, you know, in, in three weeks, right? That's just impossible. And so there's so, yeah. you know, because every every piece of information you get from a clinical trial is building off of things you, that doctors already know about medicine. And you can't just kind of come into a blind and look at it and say, now I understand it. You know, it just doesn't work that way. There's always some nuance and some info that 
you know, you can't, it's just not attainable if you don't, you know, have some background in medicine. So you're right. You have to, you have to have some trust ultimately, but you know, I, I think it's good to get second opinions generally. And yeah, you know, you know most of the time that works in your favor and, and uh, you know, I just, get some information. all right. I have, I know I have like two more and I got to let you go soon, but I just have, so one question I just thought of, because you have to hand over your patients oftentimes to surgeons and I'm wondering for you, is that hard? Like here you have like this, you have, you know, an effective control of that patient and you're providing care and feeding for that patient, right? And then you have to like bestow them to, to someone else that, yeah. that's gonna, you know, and is that hard to do? Like you have to sort of relinquish your own control and obviously you're gonna have to be around a smart people and you referred us to great surgeons for us to talk to, but is that hard? Like once you're in- intimately involved? Teresa's new book, Soft Skills I Learned the Hard Way, is out and available on Amazon. She writes about many epic fails throughout her career and how she learned from them so you don't have to. This book is full of cheat codes for how you can differentiate yourself when it matters, like in interviews, trying to get a promotion, or being a first-time leader. As always, thank you, Relatable Community. We are so grateful for your support and continued listenership. As of today... We are 8,000 listeners and 15 countries strong. Now back to the show. It's hard. It is hard. You know, first of all, I'm concerned about what's going to happen. And I don't like, I don't have control about that piece of it. Yeah. But also the medical system is designed to, there's sort of this, um, this way that authority is passed at, at different time points in a patient's care. Uh, cycle, you know, so for instance, like someone's in surgery, I, I can't tell you how many times somebody's had surgery and they call me the next day and they're like, please change my prescription from this to this to this. And, and, you know, the way the hospital works is that you're, you're admitted under a specific service and that right. service has to control, they have to know everything that's going on. And generally after surgery, it's a surgical service and they have some post-operative standards for how they treat patients and what pain medicines they're going to use. And uh, the few times that I've interfered in something like that, I've regretted it because it's, I'm, I'm killing their workflow. I'm causing confusion. And I don't really know what to do after surgery as well as they do, but yet I'm the person the patient knows the best. And so they're kind of counting on me to, to make it happen. And that, that kind of is an uncomfortable position sometimes. So, but I, but yeah, a lot of it is just not, not being able to control that piece of their care. And uh, that's, that's, you know, that, that just is hard when you're, when you like to control things. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think you just eventually, I mean, where that's one of the things about being in this area that we're in, which is so, you know, there's a lot of great talent here. So it's like you, you hopefully have some comfort in doing that. Okay. So really quick, just from a soft skills perspective, I don't know, you know, I've told you a little bit about, you know, where I am now in terms of my path and why it's so important to me, but I feel like there's this opportunity no matter what your discipline is, no matter what your job is, you know, career path it could be technical in nature and this idea that like there are other skills that really augment. And I think in the field of medicine, I, I'd be interested in your perspective. I, I think they're equally important. Like you kneeling down at the side of the bed, right? That's not going to be in any textbook. And that's certainly not going to be, maybe it's on a test. I don't know. But like in terms of the soft skills and the relationship aspect of the work that you do. So when you think about it from that context, what, and, and you're now more senior in your career. So you're seeing medical students and you're seeing people that are just entering into the workforce in this space. So from a soft skills 
perspective, what do you think are one or two that are really important and that you would advise people that are kind of entering into the workforce that they focus on? Yeah, it's, it's we're the, I don't, many people don't know this, but about three years ago, University of Virginia changed their uh, medical school um, system a little bit in that uh, portion of their third and fourth year class, I think it's 30 to 50 patients, uh, 30 to 50 medical students per year actually spend their entire third and fourth year at ANOVA. So, um, and there's a medical school on the campus of Fairfax Hospital. Oh, wow. And so they're always around now. And I, I don't know if they did that. I think Charlottesville may not be able to, you know, the population doesn't support a huge medical school. And so they, they shifted some of them down here. And so I'm more involved in medical education than ever. We have third and fourth years that are often shadowing us in the clinic. Plus we have our own HEMOC uh, oncology fellowship program, residency, so I'm always around learners. And I do think that it's possible, my, my observation, which, you know, maybe by, you know, older people, we always think, you know, the basketball players in the 90s were better, the docs were better, we worked harder, you know, you know how it is. Yeah. The, the, is the Giants that, that walk to school was so arduous and hard. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. that kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm susceptible to that. But I do think the soft skills are lacking a little bit in the medical students, you know, compared to my era. And I don't know if that's Maybe there's less interpersonal reaction, you know, interaction and sort of the the uh, iPhone era. I also have noticed in this, uh, trying to think of how to say this sensitively, almost every student I see grew up in Northern Virginia. And I always ask about their backgrounds and almost every one of them went to TJ, you know, Thomas Jefferson School for the Engineering Sciences or whatever it's called, you know, the, tech, the school you have to test into. And it's sort of, you know, it ends up being a class full of incredibly studious, you know, focused kids, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. They have a great education. I'm, I'm incredibly impressed with their accomplishments and, you know, research accomplishments and just like their ability to memorize and, and synthesize information is, is amazing. I, I do find that they struggle greatly to talk to the plumber or the electrician or the, yeah. um, you know, the gas attendant that comes into clinic because they've probably never spoken to anybody like that before. You know, they are They've been sort of surrounded in this academic uh, world. And I think uh, that they can feel, those kind of students can feel less relatable than, than the few I've seen that, are, that have a little more of a diverse life experience. You know, I mean, so many of those students are, you know, they're straight from Jefferson to some elite college to medical school, lots of summer interns along the way where they did research of some sort, or at least, you know, you know, made a nominal effort to produce some uh, publications. The few times I've had people that, you know, had been in the Peace Corps, or, you know, grew up in a somewhere else or had a different path. They usually do have, a, they have a harder time with some things that are also very important, probably the studying and the memory, which is incredibly important in medicine, but the soft skills, you know, may come a little easier to people that have had a, a more diverse life experience. Do you feel uh, like um, there's always this reputation too of like with doctors and ego and and the, the like intersection of like ego and interpersonal skills, like, you know, the idea of like, can, can you have both, right? Can you be, it speaks a little bit to what you're saying, like the more technical you are, the more the discipline of what you select and, and maybe there's a certain type of, fr- frankly, like brain mechanism that like allows you to be very good at that thing, but maybe not not as good at the other but I, I i think my argument to all of this is that their skills just like any other skill and so 
this is why I'm like on this crusade of saying, you know, you've spent so much time developing that capability. How much time have you spent developing the capability to connect with another human, to be able to talk to a human about anything so that you can build that rapport, you can build that trust. Like ultimately, you know, we didn't have to pick Dr. Cannon, right? You could have picked, like, so there's something about the relationship with, that we had with you and we chose you, right? So that's gonna serve your practice, that's gonna serve the broader group of, of Innova, you know, it has that ripple effect. So that's where I think the, the students, I feel like the better, you know, the more we can help them understand the value of them, and that it's, it may not in medicine be completely equally of value, but it's certainly close in terms of your ability to relate or communicate and connect with other yeah. humans. Yeah, Teresa, I mean, yeah, as I hear that, I kind of have a lot of different uh, thoughts going going through my head. I, I, I agree with what you're saying. And I, I, you know, I think a lot of the, um, the value of that is in the patient experience. And I've never been on the patient side of it. So so I don't, maybe I don't fully understand how therapeutic having a positive patient experience is. Maybe I want to hear that from you and Paul, because the utilitarian side of my brain says, well, wait a second, they may enjoy interacting with the personable doctor that didn't go to TJ. Sorry, I'm picking on TJ a lot. I know. <laughs> I'm stereotyping way too much because obviously there's a huge range of, there's a huge continuum of, of comfort with patients, even for people who went to TJ, but, you know, uh, just, well, just for the sake of argument, we'll call it the stereotypical sort of academic only right. type of doc, you know, doctor, um, the utilitarian side to, of me says, who cares if the patients are happy with their interaction, if everyone's getting the right and best possible treatment, you know, uh, isn't that more important, you know, and, uh, and maybe it's almost, Maybe the, in some ways, the, the emphasis on the patient experience actually leads to worse care because patients' perception of what is good care is is colored too much by how much they like their doctor, and therefore mm. the doctor maybe spends too much time trying to be likable, you know. Whereas, you know, if we were just, you know, and maybe if we fast forward to the, you know, we're, when we're further into the AI age and. You know, it's just a, an impersonal, you know, I'm imagining sort of a medical environment where everything's impersonal, but you get the most data-driven and up-to-date treatment every time. You know, what would you rather have? And, you know, so anyway, I guess what I'm saying is I'm, I'm glad you had that great experience. And I think the reality is that to provide patients great care, there has to be, and for them to follow your care plan, generally there has to be trust and therefore the people skills are important. Right. But I just wonder if it would be better served by getting a public health message out there that the patient experience maybe shouldn't be the most important thing uh, because it may in some ways indirectly obstruct delivering the most amount of good care to the most people. Does that make sense? It does. And maybe there's a spectrum, right? There, In order to build that trust, you have to be able to at least look me in the eye. You have to be able to have a conversation with me, right? You have to be able to, to for me to find you credible, so, so that trust piece, like if you want me to follow, you said it exactly, like if you want me to follow your care plan, then, you, you know, you just, for, at least for me, I mean, you're right, like maybe some people have no, they don't really care about that part of the experience. Um, yeah. And they're going to solely pick who they want to work with based on stats. Um, and that's true, too. You know, that can be true. But I think that the idea that there's maybe 
some opportunity for development and you're seeing that in in and to your point around you know like we've said maybe maybe we're maybe we have colored glasses like in terms of thinking that people from our generation are a little better at this than than others but i think there's opportunities you know for for us to kind of combine the technical and those advantages and that the advancement with the human because mm -hmm. ultimately that's going to be the only thing that's different yeah <laughs> is what the human part of it is right um mm -hmm. So when you think about, you know, your journey and you think about where you are now and you have kids too. So sometimes I, I frame this question a little differently, which is like, you're kind of putting your arm around your 20 something kid when they get there, uh, right? Like what, what kind of advice would you give them that would make the path a little bit easier or that some of the lessons you've learned along the way that have made a real impact on you? I think about. It. I wish I knew the had great a great answer to this because I'm I'm constantly thinking of what I can teach my kids, um, and then sometimes I almost feel like I'm too focused on my own journey, and maybe this isn't generalizable. This information I'm giving, but I think um, that no matter what you, when I watch my kids, one of the, the biggest worries I have for them is the interpersonal skill set because it seems to me that no matter what you go into that is incredibly crucial for your success and happiness. Mm -hmm. And I watch them walk into a room and see an adult and look away and look down as they're talking and not, you know, give, give as little uh, information as possible so they can get out of there, you know? And so I just think practicing talking to people, strangers, your barber, um, you know, engaging them in conversation, seeing how, how you can activate, you know, them, you know, by asking them the right question that really interests them, seeing how you can relate to people, you know, to me, that is just, again, um, for their personal success, yeah. you know, I think just, just that I, I really lacked that as a kid. And I really wished I had been encouraged to develop that skill. You know, I you know, honestly spent a lot of time as a kid afraid of people, you know, and, mm -hmm. and uh, I see it a little bit of my kids and I think, oh, I've got to, you know, got to figure out a way to overcome this, you know? And then I think, I also think that at a young age, kids can be a little too practical sometimes. You know, I think uh, there's, there's definitely more than enough time as a kid to pursue the things you're really passionate about. Obviously you've got to get a balanced education, but you know, if they think something's interesting, no matter how weird it is, we've got to, you've got to figure out a way to pursue it. And uh, you know, one of my colleagues, you know, the kid just loves, uh, you know, loves AI, which maybe a lot of kids love, but I, I, I'm always interested in the ways he finds to help his kid pursue becoming an AI scientist. And, yeah. and you know, I just think that's, that's amazing that to just help your kids pursue what they're interested in. And uh, do sometimes you, kids want to know. Do you feel like the mission is what really helped you from that point of, like you said, you were fairly, like, were you shy? Is that like what you're, like, were you... Yeah, I, I had to be really comfortable with the person to be myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, so that was, you know, that may have been 5% of my high school. I mean, it was a little, for me, I mean, everyone's high school journey is different. I see a lot of it. It was, it was the junior high and, and uh, you know, years were tough because, yeah, I, I was, I was afraid to talk to, I was just shy. Yeah, I was shy. Yeah. I, because I was, I was, uh, you know, really good at, I was good at sports as, for, as far as high school kids go. And, you know, so that made life a lot easier as I got into high school. But before that, you know, yeah, I had a lot of, uh, you know, I just definitely, you know, was incredibly self-conscious. So, 
Um, and then, and so I would say the combination of playing sports and going on a mission that, you know, helped me immensely. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, to your point around, like, I think it's so hard and I mean, we're all, work, we're all works in progress with this, but the like more, you said you're so self-conscious, they think, especially that age, you know, when you're younger, like you think everyone's looking, but no one really is because they're just thinking yeah. about themselves. <laughs> so right. you, you wish they could have that perspective of like, yeah, no, people aren't looking as much as you think they are. Like just, if you just be you and like not so much think about the impact of that, it could probably be a little bit easier. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I just love talking to you. I could talk to you for a lot longer. I, I guess um, just maybe one last thing about, you know, for people that are pursuing this now in terms of one of the things I like to ask people, like, and especially like where you are, it's a, it's a, a fairly unique role. You know, what are some of the characteristics that you see of people that are entering your field in medicine that like position them well to do well, you know, in, in that sort of career path? Like, are there certain characteristics that you're, you find like these kind of people tend to do really well, both from a, they're good at it, but also the fulfillment side of it, you know, given what you're seeing from, you know, you're around, like you said, a lot of students and, and other people that are kind of in the earlier stages. Yeah. I think um, there's two main things that, if you want to go into medicine, there's two main ways you have to succeed to get into the system. Yeah. And then, and I would say those two things are got to do well in school. You know, obviously that's where all the filters are. You've got to be a good student to get into medicine. I'm surprised, you know, I always thought it would get easier over time, but apparently it's getting harder. You know, I talked to all the admissions people and it's hard to get med school now, harder than it was when I applied. And it also, you also have to be able to write papers, you know, scientific papers. You have to be able to do uh, research and learn that skill. You know, you've got to be able to write a cogent discussion section and, you know, get your references in order and all of that and, and find an opportunity that helps you do that, that helps you get into medical school, helps you get the best residencies. So those are sort of the entry points. Um, if you can do those two things, you'll probably get in. But to succeed once you're in really depends more on the interpersonal stuff, which we've already spoken mm. about a lot. Interesting. So just strengthening those skills. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that's the, yeah, I think that's the thing that once you take a real job, you know, you, that's, that's really what helps the most, obviously helps in patient care. I call our current era of medicine, the patient satisfaction era, you know, when I was training <laughs> early and, and in medicine and uh, in medical school and residency and fellowship, and even my first three years of uh, private practice, we never really thought about the patient experience. You know, we, we were concerned about peer feedback about whether we were giving the right treatments or not, but we didn't care if the patient was happy with us or not that happy. You know, when I was a NY, fellow at NYU, seeing, you know, 20 patients in a morning, you know, in an oncology clinic, you know, we, it was, it was, there was, there was, I never was thinking like, oh, this patient's gonna, you know, not have a good experience. They're not happy with, I'm worried about, I would never think about that stuff. Um, and, and in some ways you couldn't afford to, we had to be, I've used the term earlier in this uh, interview, the term utilitarian, but you had to be a little bit like that. You'd really focus on you know, hey, I've got this much time and I have this many patients and this one has the worst problem. You know, you had to think like that a little bit. When I came to Inova, I mean, they hired, you know, hotel executives to coach us on the experience, the, the, the patient experience. And then they had them grade us online, the patients. Of course, you get that that survey. And yeah. then 
automatically your, your score is posted online for everybody to see. And not only that, there was a time when our pay even depended on our scores that that's not the case anymore, but, but that whole, that kind of did, uh, you know, change the dynamic of how we pay, care for patients a little bit. There's much more focus on the patient experience now than there was when I trained. So in that sense, the interpersonal skills are important, but also just how you react, you know, job happiness depends on largely on your relationship with your colleagues and your ability to function within a system and, uh, you know, work with a boss and work with people you supervise and, you know, in harmony and all of that requires, you know, the interpersonal skills that you really, it would be nice to to develop those early. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It was so great to spend time with you. And yeah, for all the like mishaps <laughs> with our technology and the, and the, yeah, thank the, you. the electricity. Yeah. And we'll see you soon. Hopefully another good visit. Okay. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Take care. Thank you so much, Dr. Cannon, for joining us on Relatable and for all of your help and support over the last three years. Thank you for your insight on the importance of communication, strong interpersonal skills, and having a diverse set of life experiences to help set you up for navigating your life a little bit more easily and hopefully successfully. Thank you to Missy for producing this episode and to Hannah for your support. A big thank you to our Relatable community. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment and subscribe and rate us on your favorite streaming platform. Relatable is sponsored by TFA Soft Skills, and you can find more information about Relatable and our sponsor by visiting tfasoftskills.com. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable. Stay connected.